I mean my comments this morning to be mostly just reflections that have grown up in me over the past couple of months reading through Exodus. I never anticipated sharing these, either last week or what I'll share this morning. So they're not for everyone, but hopefully they're for a couple of you. About a month ago, my wife left Marion and traveled north to Michigan where she was to sit with her brother who was quite sick. He'd been admitted to the hospital. When she got up there, she was drawn into just the, the drama that always happens in your life when things like this happen. You're shuttling people back and forth. You're going up, you're coming back, you're trying to provide things. And she did all of that. And, um, and then all of a sudden, we got word that things had turned for the worse, that the doctors had said that he probably wasn't going to survive this. They needed to move him to a nursing home where he would spend the last days, they said, turned out hours of his life. Throughout this time, she was calling back and forth with me in the morning and at night to tell me what was coming and then to debrief at night. But when they moved him to the nursing home, his health deteriorated quickly. He lost consciousness. He labored to breathe. He groaned every time they moved him. He never ate or drank anything. When his eyes opened, it was to try and focus to see who was in the room. And there was almost no one in the room. The nursing staff had withdrawn in order to give privacy to the family, and the family had withdrawn in order to collect themselves until uh, at the end of the day, only Lori was left. She sang songs. She read Psalm 23. She prayed out loud, but mostly just sat in the chair, wondering where her brother was with God. Then she went home to get sleep. The following morning at 7.30 Sunday, 90 minutes before we started church, um, she called to say he was gone. And within minutes after she said that, she said, I wonder if I said enough. I wonder if I did enough. Was I clear enough? Was I bold enough? Did I do what all that God wanted me to do? Or have I let him down? Do, do you recognize the feeling? Immediately, it touched an old wound of mine because I've felt it my entire professional life. Sitting on a plane with a woman who goes into her life about the abuse, the addictions, the multiple boyfriends, the lover she was just with in Morocco, the father who hated religion. She was former Catholic. I listened, 
I tried to ask thoughtful questions. I prayed briefly, and then I let it go. And as I uh, replayed that conversation with one of my friends, they said, did you share the gospel with her at any point? It was a cross-continental flight. I did not. And I wondered if I'd said enough. Or did I let him down? Joanne calls in the morning and says, my husband's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. He has three or four months to live. I'm picking him up from the hospital, bringing him home. Would you please come to see him? Of course, of course. And so I drive to the house, and uh, she is a devout Christian. Her husband, no interest in religion of any kind at all. And while he and I sit in the living room, Joanne is standing in the kitchen praying that the preacher will introduce him to Jesus Christ. I asked thoughtful questions. I asked if I could pray. I prayed. I left. And I went home wondering if I'd done enough. I made several visits to the house after that, but one month later when I did his funeral, he was, to our knowledge, still unconverted. And I wondered how much of that was my fault. Have I touched any of the questions that you maybe wrestle with as a shepherd? Have I said enough? Have I done enough? What would the situation allow? Was there room to do more? And maybe I didn't do it because I'm just too timid of a person. I think it touches one of the hardest tensions inside of a shepherd. On the one hand, we want to be faithful servants of God. We want, we want like Jesus, to seek and to save those that are lost. We want, like Peter said, to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within us. As Paul said, to be Christ's ambassadors, we implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. In there is something inside of every shepherd in this room that feels the urgency to say something when it would help. Am I close? Maybe not every tradition. No, certainly not every tradition. But this is one place where I think the Wesleyans have gotten it right. Granted, too right sometimes, but right. Other traditions or other personalities tend to say, I'll just live the life and they'll figure it out. But the truth is, there are times when we need to say things that might move the conversation toward a time of them finding Jesus Christ personally. But on the other hand, we want not to wear out our welcome. We want to be wise and patient and genuine and timely. We want to say things that are words fitly spoken. We want not to abuse the trust that these people have put in us. So we sit in the airplane seat or we sit in the living room or in the waiting room and we weigh out these tensions. Are you there yet? Sometimes just being present 
is all a shepherd can do. But I have begun to wonder if we have minimized the importance of presence by turning it into a function such that we start to think that the only reason for being present is so that we can do something. And if we haven't done something, then we've either wasted our time or worse, we have let God down. So I'm starting to wrestle with the tensions of a shepherd. When are you just there? And when do you actually do something? Because as I said, most of life falls between the answers. Most of life can't be fixed. The unwanted pregnancy, the drunk driving, the terminal diagnosis, the sudden loss of a job, the abandonment of a spouse, the abuse of a child, we can't fix those things. They're chronic and they just hang over a person's life. And to offer solutions too quickly diminishes the pain that people feel. So I started to wrestle with the question, how can I be present in more meaningful ways when presence is all I can do? Is there a more effective way of doing nothing when nothing is all I can do? You there? I was at the same time wrestling with Exodus and I noticed the power and the importance that presence has in the Exodus story. When God calls Moses, he says, go, I am sending you to take my people out of Egypt. Moses is smart enough to refuse until God will make certain promises. So he defers and he says, who am I that I would lead these people out of Israel? And immediately after that, God says, all right, go and I will be with you. In other words, it's possible to read the calling of Moses so Moses is less of a chicken who won't engage because he's timid and shy and he's more of a shrewd negotiator who will get from God the thing he considers essential to the going. And what is essential is the presence of God. I will be with you and this is my name. And when God says that, he's just about there. But how is he there? How will Moses know that he's there? In chapter 13, God appears 
physically for the first time, this presence that has always been invisible and one never knew when they were in it or not shows up in the form of a fire in the cloud. And it said the fire in the cloud was always in front of them and it led them as they went down the crooked road. God led them down the crooked road, not the straight road that was shorter, but the crooked one that took 40 years and God was always there in front of his people. So God led his people through the wilderness by the fire in the cloud. A chapter later, the fire and cloud reappear and this time it moves from in front of the people to behind the people. They are coming to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are in hot pursuit and the fire in the cloud lifts and comes in behind them so it separates the two nations. God's people are in front. The Egyptians are behind them and the fire in the cloud separates them. Then it says in chapter 14, God spoke from out of the cloud and he caused the winds to move the water back. And as the people went into the dry sea, it spoke again and the waters collapsed. So God protected his people through the fire in the cloud. Two chapters later, it appears again while the Israelites are grumbling about not having enough to eat. Like they never did this, but they were doing it on this day. And while they were grumbling, the Lord said to them, gather the assembly as one person at the edge of the camp, for I've heard their grumbling and I'm about to do something. And so Moses gathered the Israelites as one person at the edge of the camp. And the cloud appeared behind Moses. The text said, while the people were looking at Moses, they looked to the wilderness and there was the cloud. One almost sees the eyes go. And it's there validating everything the man is saying. And out of the cloud, the Lord speaks again and says, I've heard your grumbling, so I'm about to send meat in the evening and in the morning you'll eat bread until you're full. So if I got it right, it was in the fire in the cloud that God was physically present and when he was present, he led his people, he protected his people and he fed his people. Three of the four practices are there in the fire in the cloud. And if it would end here, it would be enough, but it doesn't. A few chapters later in chapter 25, while they're still on their journey, the Lord calls Moses up to the top one more time. And he makes an announcement that's about to change the relationship. He says to Moses, 
I'm moving in. I'm going to come and live with you. I'm going to dwell. I think the word Jesus used was abide. It means to get comfortable, to settle down, to take off one's shoes and relax in this space as if it were your own. God says to Moses, I want the people to build a sanctuary for me so I may come and live with them. Build it according to the specifications that I'm about to give you. And what follows are seven chapters of instructions that involve the materials, the protocol, the placement, the dimensions, it's all there in seven chapters. God is fixing to build a house so he can dwell with his people in the midst of them, encompassed by them. The problem is that this is happening up the mountain and the people at the base haven't heard it. So the people at the base of the mountain get restless sensing that God is not present in any tangible form. They melt down their jewelry, they make a golden calf, and it becomes like an icon run amok. They bow down in front of it and call it Yahweh. And God up the mountain sees this and is angry, furious, and he threatens to leave. One can see this either as an act of idolatry or you can see it as an act of adultery. God is up the mountain building a house to live in with his people. And in the absence of God's presence, the people invent another lover in the form of a calf and they move it in. And God in rage says more or less, if he's moving in, I'm moving out. If I go with you people, I might kill you. I might should kill you for this tryst. Moses goes into damage control. He starts to negotiate with God another arrangement. It's what he says to God. If your presence, there it is, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. For what will distinguish your people from any other religion in the world if you don't go with us? That is the Christian distinctive. God relents. He appears to change his mind. 
He travels again with the people through the wilderness, and when they get the news, they hurry up and build the house. And on the day they finish, Exodus chapter 40, the cloud appears for the last time in Exodus. It comes and settles over the top of the house that the people have built for God. (laughs) In fact, the people never moved again until the cloud lifted. And when it moved, they moved. And when it didn't, they didn't. And what do we learn from all of this drama? A couple of things. One is that the presence of God is sometimes the most powerful thing about him. It isn't what he can do. It's that he's with you no matter what. And when you get to that point, you have discovered another kind of religion. Now you have a God that doesn't have to fix things in order for you to believe in him. Now you're not holding him hostage to the last prayer that you just made. You are letting God be God and recognizing that when it comes to your suffering, you have nothing to teach him about suffering. The second thing it teaches us is that presence is almost always given to an individual, not to an entire community, at least not at first. God finds a person, one person, who belongs to a community, and then he confers onto that person his presence in extraordinary ways. And when he does, that person is now present in two ways. First, they are present to God, and second, they're present to the people God has entrusted to them. This is like an incarnational presence where one is always in between the presence of God and the presence of other people. And as I read it, I thought to myself that morning, that is the place to be. And when I saw that, I started to see why I had blown so many opportunities. Why I had succeeded so few times. I was always trying to have a conversation other than the one that presented itself. So I took these two ideas, present with God and present with others, and I put them on a chart like that, or like that. And this chart contrasted how one could be present to God, but not with other people, and present to other people, but not present to God. And when I put that on a piece of paper, I started to see something like a map. So can I map this out? I want you to take what's on the screen and lay it on the platform, and I will move through it quickly. Is that all right? Please, please. 
There are people in the first corner who are neither present with God nor fully present with other people. They're simply unavailable to both. Not because they're bad people, but because they never give themselves fully either to God or fully to the person in front of them. Sometimes it's because they're busy and the next appointment is always encroaching. And sometimes it's become mm, that blasted cell phone keeps going off. This thing that was supposed to tie us together was actually driving us apart because it was creating for us fictional relationships in which we are always in control of the relationship. But the matter is, if it's a genuine relationship, you're not in control. That's sort of the point. So there are people distracted all the time because of commitments, because of technology. Sometimes they're distracted because of their beliefs and their convictions and their ideologies. The woman says to me, Steve, my neighbor's husband died and I, I stood in my driveway and I looked over and I saw her. She was standing in her driveway just pacing back and forth and she looked so alone and I said to her, Bonnie, did you go over to her and say something? She said, I could not. Why? She said, oh, she's a sinner. Now, before you roll your eyes, it's too late for some of you you have. The equivalent of that today is she's gay. She voted for Trump. She believes in open borders. Our ideologies block us from being fully present with another person because we have already labeled them. Yes? I said I'd hurry and I didn't. Daggummit. Over here, we could have an altar call right here if y'all still believed in them. Um, the second quarter I call conversion and it's because there are people that are um, they are present with God and so they speak for God but they never really enter into the saga and the drama and the unresolvable tensions of life and so they always come into those conversations locked and loaded for the conversation that they want to have so when we are present with God, but not with others, we are always trying to persuade them, to convict them, to convince them, to advise them, to change them, anything, but let them be them for a moment. I do not listen. I do not want to dismiss evangelism, even aggressive evangelism. I simply want to say, not every conversation is that one. 
So if you feel yourself caught in the current of a conversation that is not leading to a natural expression of the gospel, you should not feel like you have to make the sale. You don't. Which leads to the third quadrant. There are people then who are fully present with other people. Uh, They're just not present enough with God. These people are generally critical of evangelism and they can't imagine that you would just share Jesus without fixing a person's problem. And they are right about that. The trouble is that both people in the second and people in the third have one assumption in common. They both believe that life presents problems that need to be solved. What they fail to realize is sometimes life deals up what you can't solve. And so the only thing left to you is to just be with them. Sometimes I think people in the second and people in the third, I I never know whether the voice they're hearing is God's or their own. Like we would feel guilty if we didn't either become an activist or an evangelist. So I have to do something because then when I've done it, I can go back to my six-figure income. Only when you're with people, you're not a tourist. You're a resident. And I take a moment because this is an important part. How to be with people without either converting them or fixing them. Ethan said it a couple weeks ago. When we are with people, uh, we are a non-anxious, non-judgmental. We're not forming conclusions while they're talking. Non-coercive. We're not trying to steer this conversation towards some desired end. Non-professional. We're not showing up because we're the pastor. And that's what pastors do. And I would feel terribly guilty if I didn't. No, we are there because we are genuinely involved with that other person. And when we come into that person's life, we do not visit, we enter. We do not resist the details, we embrace them. We do not advise, we listen. We do not leave, we suffer. We do not preach, we do not teach. 
something we just read or things that intellectuals like to do. Here, take two of these. We stay for as long as it takes. We have no agenda. We let them move at their own speed, even if they're not moving at all. We are present, fully present in the moment. 1700s, Catholic Jesuit priest named uh, Jean-Pierre de Cassot wrote a series of lectures to the sisters in a convent. He delivered these lectures. He thought he had found something that helped him to engage with God in extraordinary ways. He found a way, he said, to practice the presence of God in every moment of his life. So in these lectures, he delivered these. The sisters' lives were changed profoundly. He never wrote the book. He just delivered the lectures. The sisters took copious notes of these things and then passed them on to the next generation, to the next generation, until more than 100 years after Dickasot died, the sisters wrote the book called The Sacrament of the Present Moment. It's a hundred pages, and the premise is quite simple. To be fully invested in the moment we are in, without thinking of the last moment or the moment that is to come, is not only discipline, it's a holy sacrament. In his words, on par with the other sacraments. And if you're a Jesuit, that's saying something. But the way to do it, he says, is not to grab hold of the moment and turn it into something it is not. He said the way to do it is to abandon yourself in the moment to whatever the situation allows. It is to sit with another person in all of their limitations, all of the surprises, and all of the emotion that is swirling around them, and to become like a repository, a safe vault where they can just say it or be it. And you hold it. I want to argue that um, all four of these places are, are important, but they are different. People that are unavailable are present to others, but not with them. And people that are either bent on evangelism or on some form of justice only are present for somebody, but not with them. Only the people that are immersed in the situation and stay there are truly with them. Um, and 
in my defense. Um, I am aware, by the way, church, that Jesus said a lot about being converted, and he did a lot of justice. But those were just the last three years of Jesus' life. Remember, 90% of the man's life, we have no information except this one, God with us. And we have built all kinds of contraptions off of the other three. To be with someone, restrained to their circumstances, is a power that only God enjoys.